Good morning. How many of you are childcare workers? I think if I remember rightly, Amanda said that uh, she had to buy 40 candy bars or, and gift cards for, the, for everybody who works in childcare and all that sort of thing. So thank you guys so much. It's amazing the way that you guys band together as a church uh, to take care of the kids. You're generous with your time. You're generous with each other. You're generous with your service. And this church only works if we're all in on things together, right? So good job. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning needing your help and your strength. We ask that you would be near to us now. Pray that you would be uh, near to Meredith as she continues to mourn the loss of her brother. That you'd be with Jamie as she continues to mourn the loss of her friend. Father, we pray that you'd be with uh, Gail and with the Blaylock family as uh, he continues to deal with medical issues. Thank you for all the women in the church uh, who are carrying babies. We pray that you would be near to them and that you would keep those babies healthy and strong. Pray, Father, that you would strengthen this church, that you would strengthen the families of this church, that you would build our community, that you'd build our ability to build your kingdom in this city and in the surrounding areas, and especially among those who are fatherless. Be with me now. Give me strength and uh, wisdom and power by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are back in Romans, and today we wrap up Romans 9 and we move into Romans 10. Uh, So far in the book of Romans, what have we been studying? We spent a lot of time talking about what's wrong with the world, right? And what is wrong with the world? Us, we are. We're what's wrong with the world. Sin is what's wrong with the world. We are, by nature, sinners and rebels. We are the problem. Mankind has daddy issues that go all the way back to our first father, Adam, in his rejection of God the Father Almighty, right? So since the problem, we have rebelled against God the Father. We have followed in the footsteps of our first father, Adam. Adam rejected God's fatherhood and followed his wife who followed the serpent, and the world has been flipped upside down ever since. Or we've been trying to flip it upside down ever since, and it just won't flip because God's order is God's order. God's design is God's design. And it's going to work its way out in our lives. But that's the pattern that we've been repeating. And as cultures work hard to flip things upside down, they decline and collapse and crumble into chaos and ruin and destruction. And then the process repeats itself. And that's where we're at. That's why the world's inverted. That's why uh, we think it's okay for mothers to kill their children. That's why we think it's okay for men to pretend to be women, for women to pretend to be men, and for no one to honor or submit to or give thanks to God the Father who's in heaven. We are all of us corrupt. No one, how many seek God? Do you remember that? How many of us seek God? None. Zero. How many have turned aside? All of us. Everyone's gone their own way, right? We're either outright rebels, or we're hypocrites who pretend, or we're self-righteous, judgmental jerks, but any way you slice it, we are all of us sinners trapped, cornered, and there's nothing we can do to make our way back on our own to a holy God. So that's what's wrong with the world, and we spent some months talking about that, and then we spent several months talking about what God does to save us from it, what what God has done about all of that. 
And the good news of the gospel is that God did what we could never do. God came down to us because we could not ascend to him. We couldn't save ourselves. God has to save us. While we were still his enemies, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus came to unrighteous sinners like you and me, and that's what we are, unrighteous sinners. And he said, I will trade my perfect righteousness for your sin. You take the reward, I'll take the punishment. So how does that work? How does it actually come about? Well, Romans chapter 8 says that it begins with God foreknowing us. He knows us before the foundation of the world, inside and out, and then he predestines us. He determines our destiny, and that's good, because we'd rather have God determining our destiny than us determining our own destinies, right? Left to yourself, is it a good destiny? It's not. It's not. Then God calls us, and that's when we're born again and transformed. There's an external call, right? Like me to you now, repent and come to Jesus, external call, but there's an internal call too. That's the call of Jesus to you, to waken your heart up and to say, you're mine now. It's like Jesus calling his disciples, Jesus calling Paul on the Damascus road, or maybe even a better example, Jesus calling Lazarus forth from the tomb. Did Lazarus have a choice? Lazarus was dead one minute, and the next minute he was alive. Through the word that was spoken, Lazarus come forth and he was alive. And then Lazarus got up and came to Jesus. And that's where we respond to the gospel call with faith, with the faith that Jesus himself gives us, and we come by faith. And that is when we are justified, when we are declared righteous, when we are freed from sin's guilt. And then after that, we begin to put our sin to death. We begin to grow in godliness. We begin to become more and more like Jesus. We, having been freed from the guilt of sin, begin to become free from the power of sin. And that's called sanctification. And then it finally all ends when we die and are glorified and are made perfect. And we are not only free from the guilt of sin and the power of sin, but from the presence of sin. And it's all God's work. It's all of God from first to last. He starts it. He finishes what he starts. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can come between us and him. Nothing can stand between us and God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in hell, nothing on earth, nothing at all, because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, that's all of Romans 1 to 8 in a nutshell, right? And we spent months studying it. Now, that gets us caught up right back to the same big question we've been trying to answer the last couple of weeks as we've been working through Romans 9, which is, well, okay, what about those who aren't saved then? What about them? Because if it's God who saves, if God's the one who saves, if he's the hero of the story... And we're not our own Savior. We need a Savior. He's the Savior, and He's the one who does it, and He does it from first to last, and that's why we can be comforted and why we can be strengthened and encouraged. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, and He will start what He finishes, and He who began a good work in us will, will complete it, see it to completion. If all of that's true, 
then why doesn't he just save everybody? And what about Israel? What about all of God's promises to the children of Abraham? And those answers so far have been, well, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. And if that doesn't feel fair, the biblical answer is, you're right. It's not fair. What would be fair is if God threw us all into hell. That would be fair. What's amazing is that he saves anyone at all. It's called grace, and grace is not fair. Grace is giving to the undeserving. Thank God that he's not fair in that sense. God is infinitely more gracious and loving and generous than we are in that we imagine ourselves to be. How many of you go out of your way to show love and kindness and tenderness on a daily basis to your enemies? How many of you would go out of your way to save your enemies? Every morning, every day, God makes the sunshine and the rainfall, and he takes care of everyone. Every day. And some of us even go so far as to save. But God is also just. He desires all aspects of his character to be glorified, to be shown, to be put on display like a star in the night sky, like the diamond in the showcase at the jewelry shop on the black velvet. Sin is real. Death is real. Hell is real. Justice and judgment are real. They're coming. But so is grace and mercy to all who believe, to all those he calls, to all those he has chosen. So God is good, and we're not. He's the Savior, and we're not. And at a certain point, what's our job? Our job is just to keep our mouth shut, isn't it? It's to be humble, to be grateful, and trust that God's powerful to save those that we love and those that we care about so that we can pray and preach with faith and courage. Think about it like this. Where were you headed when God got a hold of you? Stop and think about it for a minute. What exactly were you doing? Where were you headed when you thought you were the author of your own destiny? How good were things going for you? And then what happened and what changed? I was going my own way. I don't know about you. I was going my own way. I was a junior in high school. I had a girlfriend. I was playing baseball. I was having fun at the parties with my friends. I was getting ready to go to college on scholarship. I was not looking for God, but God was looking for me. I started asking hard and troubling questions about meaning, about purpose, about the point point of existence. Like, why are we here? What does it matter? Who cares? Why bother? Why try? About the hypocrisy of many so-called Christians, about my own hypocrisy just being a sort of standard blob, Midwestern, Evansville, Everybody's a Christian, so nobody's a Christian kind of Christian because we're all just sort of good people. But why? Why did I even start asking those questions? What changed? What caused my heart to suddenly begin seeking out answers to those hard things? Why not just keep going? And then, more than that, why did I decide to turn to the Bible and start reading it? 
And then why did I believe what I was reading? And why did it begin to change my life? Where did all that come from? I wasn't looking for that. I wasn't looking for my relationships with my friends to change. I wasn't looking to quit the baseball team. That was not where I was headed. Why did my whole life's trajectory turn? That's me. What about you? That's where we're at in today's passage in Romans 9, beginning in chapter, well, chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Okay, so here's what he's saying. I, you, we were not pursuing righteousness. I was pursuing girls and sports and school and other things. Jesus was the farthest thing from my mind. And then God saved me. But what about those who are pursuing righteousness? What about those who were trying? Israel, God's people, were pursuing a righteousness by law, he says. And today there are many people, not just the people of Israel, who pursue God's righteousness by law. In fact, uh, you could argue that most of the people who are pursuing God's righteousness by law today aren't even from the people of Israel. They would call themselves Christians. Or maybe something else. That's, everyone has their gods. Everyone is out pursuing some kind of law. That's what we talked about in our American God series, right? But here's the thing about pursuing righteousness that comes from law. We've broken the law. Our covenant relationship with God, man's covenant relationship with God is broken. When you've broken and violated a covenant relationship, can you make it right just by working hard and trying? You can't. Can you undo what you've done? You can't. Simple, easy example. If you have a marriage and one party commits adultery, can the guilty party just undo that? Can they make it right? No. No, they can't. Some lines, once you cross them, they've been crossed forever. Some bells cannot be unrung, and there's no way to get back what you've lost. When Adam ate the fruit in the Garden of Eden, there was no going back. There was no going back. When you cross certain lines sexually, there's no going back. There's no going back. You can't have your virginity back. Once it's gone, it's gone. You can't have the sanctity of the marriage bed back. Once it's gone, it's gone. Once you've abused or harmed someone, you've crossed the line, you can't uncross. With all these things, there are consequences. Those consequences have to be borne out. 
Pursuing righteousness by law, by works, by effort is trying to get back across the line on your own. It's trying to uneat the apple. It's trying to, to close Pandora's box and get everything back inside. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't matter what you've done. You've broken the covenant. You've broken your vows. You've broken the relationship. And relationships don't work that way. Covenants don't work that way. It's the other party that has to make a way for you to be restored. If you commit adultery, you're guilty of violating the marriage covenant. And the fate of your marriage now lies in the hands of your husband or your wife. They have the power and right before God to walk away. And they don't owe it to you to stay. Because you broke the covenant. And you are powerless to restore what you've broken. Now, can marriages come back from adultery? They can. But it takes work. When it comes to us and God, we are in a worse position than a spouse who commits adultery. We have made ourselves the self-declared enemies of the holy, righteous, and just God of the universe. We've made war on heaven with our sin and our rebellion. Once you've done that, you don't get to come back from that. Not on your own. The devil and the fallen angels did that, and they don't get to come back for that, from that. There is no coming back from that. Not for them. And for us, the same is true. That's where we were. That's where Romans 1 to 3 puts us. Work has to be done to restore the relationship, and we can't do the work. We can't do it. We can't pay for our crimes. The guilt's infinite. Infinite justice from mere mortals has to be eternal. That's why hell exists. And that's where God comes with the good news. God did not look at us and say, here's the work, here's the standard, here's the law, and also you can't do it. Sorry. He said, here's the standard, you can't do it, I will do it for you. And he sent Jesus to come and to do the work and to give us the gift of his righteousness to make things right. So he came, he lived a perfect life, a perfectly righteous life, what we could never do, and he bore the punishment our sin deserves. He gets the sin, we get his righteousness, and we receive that righteousness by faith. The work's done, it's finished, he's done it. Now you've heard it since you were a kid, some of you. But it has to hit home, because it is the only way to freedom. Freedom from guilt, freedom from shame, freedom from fear of death, freedom from fear of man, from fear of the government, from fear of anything or anyone who is not God himself. But here's a question. If you were to go out on the street this afternoon, say downtown Evansville or the riverfront or someplace, where are people going to be today? People are going to be, it's a nice day, right? People are going to be outside doing things. Go to a park, go to the riverfront. And you ask 10 people, the first 10 people you meet, hey, do you think that you're going to heaven? What are they going to say? Everybody's going to say yes, right? Okay, why? You get to heaven and you ask God, why should, God says, why should I let you in? What's your answer, right? I'm a good person. What else? I went to church. 
I've been baptized. Mostly it's just going to be, I'm a pretty good person, right? Everybody just kind of thinks they're a pretty good person and it all kind of balances out. I've not done anything really bad. Of course, the scale of what's really bad just kind of shifts with me, right? For most people, it's going to be some form then of law-keeping, some form of works. And here's what he's saying in the passage. Everyone who pursues a righteousness by works fails, falls short. They miss the mark. They can't attain any kind of perfect righteousness because no one's perfect. And you can't cross back over the line. You can't uneat the apple. You can't pay for that yourself. You cannot atone for your own sins. No one's righteous. Everyone's guilty. And so what was so offensive to the Jews in the early church was you had all these Gentiles who had done all these horrible things. We're talking about people who grew up worshiping demons and sacrificing to pagan demon gods and participating in these wild acts of religious sexual desecration and orgies with cult prostitutes. These people are untouchable and perverse. These people are doing all the things that God forbids. Worst of all, they're eating bacon. Thanks for laughing. I didn't have my coffee this morning. They're out there doing whatever they want. They're having sex with whoever they want. God comes to them and says, look, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. Believe in Jesus. You'll be forgiven. I'll give you a righteousness, not your own. And so a bunch of Gentiles are like, wow, that's crazy. Cool. I want that. I need to be forgiven. I feel bad. I feel guilty. Thank you, Jesus. And now they believe in Jesus, and they're coming out of all this stuff. And God's done it. God forgives them. God welcomes them into the church. And you have over here all these good little boys and girls who grew up trying to obey the law, looking at them and saying what? That's not fair. That's not fair. I've been over here trying my whole life to do things right. They tell me this like bacon-eating, demon-worshipping, sexually debauched pagan just gets to hop right across the line? That's not cool. That's not okay. That's not fair. It's not fair. How many of you grew up in religious households? How many of you grew up envying people who couldn't do, or who could do the things that you knew that you weren't allowed to do, that you were taught not to do. You grew up with some envy there. Because your parents, you know, were trying to honor God, protect you. So you grew up with envy for people outside of the Christian faith. What does that say about you? What did it say about the first century Jews who were watching these Gentile converts? It said they didn't really believe that God's ways were better. Not really said that they weren't actually living by faith. It said they were just trying to muscle it out because they knew that's what they were supposed to do. It was cultural, but it wasn't from the heart. They were jealous of the sin and the debauchery that the Gentiles came from. They were the son that stayed at home, getting jealous that the prodigal returned. 
the, the workers out in the field who got started at the early part of the day. You remember this parable? Jesus tells the parable about how a master goes out and goes out and hires workers for a day's wages in the first hour of the day, and they're really happy and excited about it, and they come. And in the middle of the day, he goes out and hires some more, and they come, and they're all working together. And at the end of the day, with like an hour left, he goes out and he hires some more. And so they're working, and then he goes to dole out the wages. And the workers who started and worked the whole day realized that every time he went out, he promised the same full day's wages to everybody. But they've been out there all day. And some people have only been out there for an hour. And so they're like, not fair, not fair. And he's like, what's it to you? Did you agree to do the work for full price? You got full price. You got what was promised. What's it to you? But that's where they were at. They stumbled over the stumbling stone over Jesus, the equalizer who wipes away everyone's sins, no matter where they come from, and who gives the gift of his righteousness to anyone who comes to him by faith, no matter where you are coming from. And that's a stumbling block to those who have hard hearts. It's beautiful to those who believe, but it's a stumbling block to those who have hard hearts. Jesus talks about this sort of thing all the time, right? This alluded to a couple of different stories that he tells. But this is just how his ministry works. He comes to earth and he's dealing with Pharisees. And as he's dealing with the Pharisees, he's ministering to who? He's ministering to the outcasts, the prostitutes and tax collectors, people on the outside. And so the Pharisees, the rule keepers, the people of the law, they hated that. All of his stories were directed at them. And so what did that actually mean? The people who were posturing themselves as keeping the law were in some ways the farthest from Jesus, the farthest from God. Why? Because they had the pride to think that they could be good enough to get to God. And at the same time, they hated the good that God's law pointed to and were jealous of those who didn't have the heavy weight of obedience on their shoulders. And the way you know that is you get to see how jealous they were of the tax collectors and prostitutes that were close to Jesus. They thought that's what they deserved. They thought they had earned that. They couldn't see that nobody deserves that. Nobody. They're like kids who grew up with participation trophies. They thought they should get points for effort. But they lost because we all lose. The secret that prostitutes and the tax collectors knew was that there are no participation trophies. We all start in the loss category, sinners by nature, which is to say that the prostitutes and tax collectors just knew who they were, right? They knew what they had done. They knew they didn't deserve anything from Jesus. And so they came to Jesus anyway because they had nowhere else to go. And they came like beggars with empty hands, open hands, outstretched arms, coming to Jesus. Not like the Pharisees who came with fistful of arguments and their own good deeds, as if that was going to somehow make them better than everybody else. If your hands are full when you come to Jesus, you can't receive anything from him. He's the giver, not you. You have to come empty-handed and receive grace. 
You come with your hands full as if you can earn his love and forgiveness and righteousness. He's not going to give anything to you. He doesn't want to have anything to do with you. That's pride and arrogance. You're not that good. Even your best deeds, they're not that good. They're not really that good. Jesus is a rock, a cornerstone for everyone who believes. A foundation, what you build your life on, what we're trying to build this church on, what your family and marriage can be built on. But he is a stumbling stone for the proud. How do people trip and stumble over Jesus? Like in real life, how? All kinds of ways we're proud, aren't aren't there? All kinds of things that that get in our way of just the simple truth that Jesus comes to save sinners. Let's keep going. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So remember, this is the Apostle Paul talking. He is this man, the man who's zealous for God, but not according to knowledge. He was the man who was ignorant of the righteousness of God, and so he sought to establish his own righteousness. That's why he went around persecuting Christians. And then he met Jesus on the road to a place called Damascus, and Jesus struck him blind. And from that moment on, Paul finally began to see. And that is what changed his heart. He was filled with compassion for his people, for people who were just like him, his friends and family who didn't know Jesus, for the people of Israel. And that's what God does when he saves us, when he changes us, when he gives us a love for people who don't know Jesus. He softens our hearts. So Paul says it's his heart's desire and prayer to God that they may be saved. Okay, question, who are your people? Who are your people? Who is it that you look at and say, it's my heart's desire that they be saved? Do you pray for them? If all this predestination stuff we've talked about the last couple weeks is true, why does Paul bother praying? It's the wrong question, isn't it? If it were entirely up to the choice and free will of your friends and family, why bother praying? God's not going to intervene. What can he do? But if it's God who saves, if it's God who predestines, if it's God who calls, then it's God who can change and transform the hearts of the people that you love. He's the one with the power, so he's the one we ask. God is not just sovereign over the ends, he's sovereign over the means. Not just who he saves, but how he saves. And he loves to work through us. He loves to work through our prayers, just like he loves to work through our families. Paul understands this about God. God is loving and gracious and generous, and he wants us to be that way too. He honors that. So Paul prays that God would save the people that he loves, and we should too. We should be like Paul. Praying is what keeps our hearts tender to God. And to those who don't know him. It keeps us cued into the love of God and it keeps us hopeful because God really does love the world. He made it. He takes care of it. He made us. He takes care of us. He's gracious and generous and he means to work through his people. You have to believe that. And you have to trust him and keep your heart open and tender to him and to those that you love. 
And I know it's tempting for some of you to just hate everyone and to hate everything and to look at the world and the horror of it all and to see something that isn't worth saving, to see something that isn't worth fighting for. And you're wrong. Because the world keeps spinning. And the world keeps spinning because God still sees something worth saving. Jesus hasn't come back. And that's because he means to save more people. He means to do more. He loves the world. It's his patience and kindness and tenderness that causes the sun to rise every morning. Don't be more righteous than God in your own mind. The whole Western world has been transformed by God. Things may have gone south. They may have gotten ugly. It's still an amazing time to be alive. There are things to fight for. There are people to fight for. Starting with our own families. Starting with our neighbors and friends. Starting with this community. And with God, all things are possible. Think of it this way. How did you come to know Jesus? Somebody somewhere told you about him didn't they? Somebody did. Who told you? Who was it? It was somebody who loved Jesus. God put that somebody who loved Jesus into your life. Maybe it was your mom, maybe it was your dad, maybe it was your grandma, maybe it was a friend at school. God put that person into your life, in your orbit, so that you could hear. And he saved you. Now guess what? You are that person now. And there are people he has put in your orbit. People he means to save. People he means to see the love of God. That means there may be many people in your orbit that God means to save through you. You should trust that and believe it. And just have faith for it. Starting with your family moving out to your friends and your coworkers and your neighbors. They're there for a reason. How many people in this community have a faithful Christian friend or family member? Well, all your family members and friends do, I hope. That should tell you something. That should give you hope. I'm not saying go buy a soapbox and start preaching at work. It's not everybody's gift, but start praying and pray with faith and hope. Pray for the people God's put in your life and look for opportunities to talk to them or ask them if you can pray for them. Trust God to use those. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the end. He's the point. He's the purpose. He's the destination. It's our goal to get to Jesus and bring as many people with us as we can. It's not to worry about who's in and who's out because everyone who comes to Jesus is saved. That's our job. Everyone who calls out to Jesus is saved and healed. Everyone. Go read the Gospels. See if you can find a single person that Jesus turns away. Nobody calls out to Jesus from the side of the road and gets turned away. Is there a blind man in the Gospel that he doesn't heal? Is there a child that he refuses to see? 
Now, sometimes his disciples turn people away, and then he gets angry with them. Makes Jesus angry. He doesn't turn anybody away. Uh, He gets kind of testy with some people. He pushes them. Some people turn away from him. There's this one woman that comes to him, and he says, it's not right. But she persists, and he ends up not turning her away either. Sometimes people turn away from Jesus, makes Jesus sad. He doesn't turn anybody away. What about the people who got dragged to Jesus? Even people who got dragged to Jesus got healed. You realize this? There's a story about it. There's this paralyzed dude, and his friends cart him to Jesus, and they dig a hole in somebody's roof, and they let him down. And you know what we don't have a record of? We don't even know if that guy wanted to go. I don't think it matters. Like, for all we know, it could have been anything from, guys, 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 you got to take me to Jesus. Guys, you got to, fine, okay, I guess we'll take you up and dig a hole in the roof, to... Guys, what are you doing? You're going to take me to some crackpot, loony guy who thinks he can heal me? What is wrong with you people? Leave me alone. Or anything in between. We don't know. It doesn't say. What we know is his friends brought him to Jesus and Jesus healed him. So bring your friends and family to Jesus and see what God does. There are only two ways. Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Can anybody do that? Can anyone live up to the law? No. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. In other words, don't try to act like Jesus is inaccessible to you. Don't try to act like he's beyond you. Don't say, oh, how can I get up to heaven? Or who can descend into the depths? You don't have to do either. You don't have to do either. Nobody's asking that of you. You can't pave your own way up to heaven. You can't pay for the depth of your sin. That's not it. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it has to be both with your mouth and your heart, you will be saved. Will be. Maybe. Might be. No. Could be. No. Will be. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, justified by faith, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Confess that faith with your mouth, you proclaim it. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Doesn't matter. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. It's not about the law. It's not about lawlessness. It's not about Jew. It's not about Greeks. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Some people who call on the name of the Lord, everyone, everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, who believes in their heart and confesses with their mouth will be saved. So come and bring your friends and bring your family and bring your neighbors. Come. Let's pray.
Father, I pray that you would this morning give us faith to come to Jesus. If there are those here who have never come, never trusted him, never turned to him, never responded to the gospel call, I pray that this would be the morning that they do. And I pray that you would strengthen all of our hearts to know the love that you have for us and for the world, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our family. Pray that you'd fill us with faith and hope that we would dare to believe and pray for those that we love and that we would speak the truth, confess the name of Jesus to them and bring them to Jesus. Help us to have faith and work through us to build your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.